You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Mark 1, 29 through 39. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, darling. You all may be seated this morning. We are continuing our series, Strengthen Our Hands, and if you're not sick of that yet, I hope you get sick of it, because it's going to be our series for the entire year. It says in Nehemiah that they strengthen their hands for the good work of rebuilding. Their wall had been torn down by circumstance and time and decay, and they came back to rebuild the wall. And... We all know that the time we have spent away from each other, no matter what, even if things have gone amazingly well in this trial called COVID, there is still damage in our lives for having not been together. It's not healthy that we're not together. There's trauma in the world, in the country, in our state, in our church. There's trauma for what we are going through, over what we're going through, because of what we're going through. And it is incumbent upon the church to not be surprised. And so we said at the beginning of the year, and again, the Christian year began on November 29th, and we said then that 2021 is not going to be a year of a quick return to old living, but a year of waiting and rebuilding. And so it says they strengthened their hands for the work of rebuilding. And so the question I ask the Holy Spirit is, what does it mean for a Christian to strengthen their hands? And in my mind, I saw the moment where Thomas reached out to touch the very strong, very capable hands of Jesus. And what, may, what, what proof was there that Jesus' hands are strong if not the scars that pierce right through the middle of them. Weakness is strength in the kingdom of God. Healed injury is proof that God is a healer. 
Holes in Jesus' hands prove that death can't stop what God is doing. And so the proof of serving is nail-scarred hands. The proof that you preferred your brother over yourself is nail-scarred hands. The proof that your life is secondary to the life of your neighbor produces nail-scarred hands. These are the things that produce nail-scarred hands. And so if Christians have squeaky clean hands, we're like Pontius Pilate. We're not like Jesus. Pontius Pilate said, I wash my hands of this decision. We need to have nail-scarred hands, hands that can prove I've loved my neighbor at the expense of myself. What did we say for this year by way of reminder? The Holy Spirit told us in December that prayer and praise will produce a measure of peace in our life. That prayer plus praise will produce a measure of peace in our life. Well, what is prayer? I'm going to give you a quick definition of prayer, one of my favorites. Prayer is simply telling God what it's like to be you right now. Prayer is simply telling God what it's like to be you right now. No need for faking it out. No need for saying things. I had somebody in um, a new believers class that we did, I had somebody say to me, if the Bible says that God knows what we need of before we ask, then what's the point of asking? And I said, just think think about what God is saying. God is saying, I know what you have need of before you ask me, but I still want you to ask me. Why? Because God isn't approaching us based on our need. Because if he was, he wouldn't need to hear us speak. He would just need to know what we need. But he's approaching us based on his love for our voice, his love for our personality, his love for who we are. And so even though he knows what we need, it still moves his heart with joy when we come and ask him. Can you imagine I told my beautiful four-year-old daughter that I know everything she needs, and so because I already know, she doesn't need to come and talk to me. That's not a very good thing. There's a lot of times where I don't want her to come and talk to me, and that's a whole entirely different story. But it's not her need that moves me toward her. It's her that moves me toward her. It's her. Salem, it's not your needs that make me fall in love with you as a pastor. It's you that makes me fall in love with you as a pastor. If I knew all of your needs, I would still want you to talk to me because I love you. What is praise? Praise is the celebration of what God has done, is doing, and will do. Praise is the celebration of what God has done, is doing, and will do. And I want to say this. Praise will never get you out of your circumstances despite what you may hear. We've just attached praise words to abracadabra And instead of saying abracadabra, we say, praise your way through it. And we don't realize that we think, we teach that praise gets you out of things. But that's really magic. That's not the gospel. Praise doesn't get you out of things. Praise gets you through things. And praise doesn't make your situation work better. Praise makes you work better in your situation. Praise does not make your situation work better. Praise makes your soul and your heart and your faith 
and your virtue and your volition. It makes those things work better. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because you're with me. It's that phrase. It's David saying, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that is praise. And what is he praising? He's praising that God is going to get him through the valley of the shadow of death, not out of it, but out the other side of it. And so prayer, telling God what it's like to be you, and praise, celebrating what he's done, is doing, and will do, that will bring peace. And what is peace? We've been saying it like crazy. Peace is simply the assurance that you are loved and forgiven by God. It's everything Doreen said when she was talking. She came in here without peace. She left that day with peace. And what was the peace she left with? I am loved and I am forgiven. So when we pray and when we praise, God doesn't give us peace. We become aware of the peace we already have always had. God is not a slave to our actions. If we do, then God will. That's slavery. God is not a slave to our actions. God is always doing good for us. When we praise and when we pray, it doesn't make God do something good for us. It opens us to the good that God is already doing for us. Christ, in this text that Jacqueline read, Christ is the only truly free being that has ever walked the face of the earth. One day, when we are remade fully into his image, we will be free too. Christ is the only truly free being ever to walk the face of the earth. And here's what freedom is. Freedom is not getting to do everything that you've always wanted to do. Freedom is simply not having to do things. Freedom is not having to do things. I have to get the last word. I have to have that fifth slice of pizza. I have to have that other drink. Freedom is when you get to do things, but you don't have to do things. Freedom is when you can say no. On the other side, when we are fully remade in the image of God, freedom will be what we get to say yes to. But right now, in this body of sinful flesh, freedom is our ability to say no. I don't need to get that last word. I don't need to make that extra comment. I don't need to respond to that subtweet or that post. I don't need to let them know fully how I feel about everything always going on in my life. Freedom is resistance in a fallen world. Freedom is when we can resist the powers and principalities that are trying to get us to think we have to do things. The only thing we have to do is be free in Jesus. And he's slowly making us free as we walk with him. Pray with him, praise with him, weep with him, mourn with him, rejoice with him, be disciplined by him, be rebuked by him, be picked back up again by him. He's making us free. In this text, and all I want to do is quickly preach on three freedoms or three ways of resistance I just said quickly, and I think I heard Anthony laugh up in the balcony. Is that, I mean, I don't know. 
Maybe I'll take a really long time. That's probably true. Maybe I have to keep preaching, and so I'm not fully free to stop yet. Maybe that's a problem. Maybe that's why pastors always say in closing and then preach a whole nother sermon. Because there's no freedom up here. Well, we'll see if I'm in bondage or not. Right, Scott? Pray for me. You can pray for me. Don't pray too hard because then I'll be offended. Like, why are you praying that I'll finish? And then it's like a weird revolving door we have found ourselves in here. I can't wait till you all get back in the building, but this has been kind of fun <laughs> with some characters in the room. It's been kind of fun, but I can't wait till you all come back, Salem. Okay. God's freedom is resistance, and we see this Three ways in this gospel text we see three areas where Jesus' freedom resists something. So we'll start with the first one. Freedom resists transaction. Freedom resists transaction. What is a transaction? A transaction is when I say, I will give you this if you give me something in return. That is a transaction. I won't give you something until, you get, until I know that you're going to give me something of equal value in return. Transaction is when I only offer myself if I'm going to be offered something. Transaction is when I offer something knowing full well that my offer is going to cause or make or manipulate the other person to either owe me or have to give me something in return. So if we've ever said to our spouse, maybe, we'll just throw this out there. If you've ever said to your spouse, I forgive you, and then a week later, they do something and you bring up what you forgave them over, you turn that forgiveness from serving into a transaction. At first, it was an offering. I forgive you. No strings attached. But the minute you say, you know what? You never forgive me. I forgave you last week. Now you just made it a transaction. Now you just said, I forgave you so that I could have leverage in this moment. That's not going to get you very far. <laughs> it's not just money that we transact with. We transact with compliments. A compliment is when you tell somebody the truth about their goodness and walk away. Flattery is when you tell somebody the truth about their goodness and hope that they will do something good for you in return. These are just free things I'm throwing out there. I'm not saying I follow them all. Don't look at me like that. I'm just saying this is true, and we should all work together to try to figure out how to do this exactly. Peter's mother-in-law is sick. When Jesus heals her, it says that she got up and began to serve them. We have taught in the church that if you serve Jesus, he will heal you. But that is transactional. Jesus doesn't wait until Peter's mother-in-law serves him to heal her. He heals her into serving. He heals her in a way that creates in her the capacity and the ability to serve at all. Jesus doesn't serve her so that she would serve him back. Jesus serves her into serving. He serves her because she, her life is worth serving to Jesus. It says that he went up to her. It says that he took her by the hand, and it says that he lifted her up. Those, those words that are poetically used in the gospel, he took her by the hand. He spoke gently to her. He helped her to get up. Jesus was gentle. He was empathetic. He was serving her. He healed her so that she could serve him. Her, she, if, if Jesus doesn't heal, we can't serve. If there's somebody in your life that's not serving God right now, they're not serving God, not because they're rebellious, but because they're not healed enough. They need a touch. They don't need to get yelled at. They don't need a rod 
They need service. Jesus doesn't serve us once we serve him. He doesn't heal us once we serve him. He serves us in a way that heals us. And our healing makes us want to do for Christ what he's done for us. I know maybe some of you just got a little testy when I said people who are not serving Christ aren't being rebellious. Paul said it this way. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. The people I'm looking at right here, I'm looking at flesh and blood. If any one of them got all nasty and rebellious right now, I have to know that what I'm dealing with is not their rebellion because I don't wrestle with flesh and blood. The issue isn't Don's rebellion. The issue is a power that is rebellious that is now operative in Don's life. And like Jesus, we speak the evil out of a person to preserve the person. But there really is no such thing as a rebellious person. There's only people who are under the sway of rebellious powers. Everybody that Jesus looks at is still a child that he created that he's still calling good, and he's very upset that the enemy and the powers in isms, racism, materialism, legalism, fundamentalism, all the isms that wreak havoc on our life, those are the things Jesus is after to save the person from them. Not to judge the person and condemn the person and destroy the person, but to save the person from those things to release them from those things. That's why when the Pharisees throw a man in front of Jesus and say, he has an evil spirit and he's in the synagogue, Jesus doesn't kick the man out of the synagogue. He kicks the demon out of the man so the man can stay in the synagogue. He serves us and his serving of us heals us and our healing makes us want to serve. But it's not transactional. We need to love this way. We need to serve people just because we're seeing the goodness in them that God sees in them. And now I want to make a caveat here. We should be serving our children, our neighbor, our spouse, our church, our coworkers. We should be serving people without looking for anything in return because that's what Jesus does. They are value enough to be served. And I know for some of you, you're thinking of some people that is very difficult for you to think that they have enough value to be served. But that's why right now in this moment, this sermon, as my wife so eloquently said, the preaching of the gospel, this is, the preaching of the word is one of the ways that Jesus serves us so that we could be healed to serve others. So if all you do is listen to a sermon looking for what you agree with and disagree with, you're not letting the healing in. <laughs> Don't be a gatekeeper. Listen to the sound of the gospel. I always pray that the minute the words come out of my mouth, somewhere in the air between my mouth and your ears, I pray that God does something with the imperfect, very flawed, probably messed up words that I'm saying. I pray that he turns them into bread for your ears. I want to say something to the person who might be dealing with abuse. If somebody's abusing you, emotionally, mentally, physically. This is not a call for you to keep serving that person so that they can be healed and eventually stop abusing you. There are people that we have to walk away from and pray that God would send somebody else into their life to serve them. 
There are certain people that I can't serve because they, they hurt me in a certain way. And so I need to pull myself out of that situation and let somebody else from the church into that situation. No one person is as big as the church. Together we can serve everybody, but not everybody is supposed to be served by anybody. There are people in your life that might be wreaking havoc on your life. If you're getting your face kicked in, the Bible is not telling you to keep serving that person until they stop. Get out of the situation and pray that God sends someone in that can serve them into healing. It doesn't always have to be you. I just want to make that clear. So freedom resists transaction. If every time we serve Christ, serve our church, serve our friends and family and neighbor and coworker, if we do that because we're trying to get something out of it, it's not serving, it's manipulating. Serving is when you see value enough in a person and you just want to do good for them because God calls them good. The next thing, and this is, this is hard to explain, but it's very impressive that Jesus is like this. Uh, the first one was freedom resists transaction. The second thing we see here is that freedom resists triumphalism. Freedom resists triumphalism. What does it say? After Jesus just, he just expels demons all over the place, and then he says to the demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Jesus is proving that he is not just Lord of the earth, he's also Lord of the heavens, and he is not only healing physical disease, he's also healing spiritual disease. And every time he heals somebody, or every time he casts out a demon, he always says, don't make me known. Because Jesus is free from triumphalism. Triumphalism is simply the overt, excessive celebration of your own personal accolades. Jesus, listen to me, doesn't want to be famous apart from us. He wants his fame to be a part of us. Jesus doesn't want to be famous apart from you. He wants his fame to be a part of you. So Jesus doesn't want to become individualistically popular. Jesus wants the people around him to rise to a level of being known. And he can sit back and say, the work that God's doing through my life, look, it's making them better. Jesus doesn't want to be the husband where everybody knows if it wasn't for him, everything wouldn't be working. Jesus wants the whole family to be doing so good that his fame is somehow caught up with theirs at the same time. He's not rising above them in fame. That's why when Jesus heals a demon, he says, don't tell anybody. But when the disciples cast out demons, all Jesus does is celebrate it. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like a lightning bolt. I saw what you did. It was amazing. Heaven is rejoicing because of what you're doing. He celebrates his disciples, but he doesn't let demons or anybody else celebrate him because he is free from the need to be impressive. Jesus doesn't have the need for people to think he's impressive. All Jesus wants is to see in people the good fruit of his life. Do we know how exhausting it is when we can't just enjoy something good we did, when we also have to be seen inside the good thing that we did? It devastates our fatigue levels. 
So many of us post instead of pray. And I'm not talking about big situations. I'm talking about breakfast. So many of us sit down and we're like, wow, that plate of food in front of me looks really good. Instead of saying thank you to Jesus and putting my phone away, I post it so that everybody can see how amazing my plate of food is. And then I eat it and I'm all excited about it. I'm posting instead of praying because I'm living in triumphalism. I need everybody to know my life is going good right now. Why? Probably because we don't have the virtue to prove to people that life is going good. So we need screens to be able to do it. Mm. I can't stand the preacher today at all. Just tell me some good things. How can I get money, you know? Jesus doesn't want to be famous apart from us. He wants his fame to be in us. He wants his family to rise to a level of virtue and fruit of the spirit and anointing and goodness in the world. He wants to be known in the celebration of his entire family. He doesn't want to be known apart from us. He wants to be known in the celebration of his family. He literally says to the father, glorify them with the same glory that you've glorified me with. John 15, 16, and 17. He prays, don't just glorify me, glorify them. Make them one with us as we are with each other. Let them in on what's going on. Here is the prayer. If you don't know what to pray for somebody, here's the prayer to pray for somebody. Pray for anybody in your life that what is true of Christ will one day be true of them. I pray that for Sophia all the time. Father God, I pray for my daughter that one day what is true of Jesus will be true of her. Well, how can you say that? Because Jesus prayed that himself. Bring them into what we have. Make them one as we are one. Glorify them with the glory you've glorified us. Jesus doesn't want private glory. He wants to be in the midst of the crowd of everybody getting glorified. Jesus wants us to be glorified, and that's what glorifies him. We should be showering people with glory and acclaim and affirmation, not trying to get it. We should be giving it like crazy. I'm pretty sure there are some Sermon on the Mount stuff like whatever you do in public, surely you have your reward. Right, Doreen? Doreen's the resident theologian here. Like, I think he says something about like, be, like you go into your prayer closet and do things in private and then the Lord will reward you. See how it says that? If you show the world all the good you're doing, that is your reward. That's the best you'll ever have is the acclaim. But when you do things just because of love... What does it say? It says God will reward you. Why? Because God doesn't just want all the credit either. He wants to give you some too, so he'll reward you. We should be the same kinds of people. Without you in the room, I just assume that the silence I hear is just rampant agreement. Just perfect agreement with everything. Finally, and I hope somebody can relate to this one, I want to read the text again. It says, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. The freedom of Christ resists transaction. The freedom of Christ resists triumphalism. And the freedom of Christ resists the tyranny of time. 
It resists the tyranny of time. Has anybody felt like, I need to accomplish more in my life soon because I'm getting older? At least 15 people in the room right now, and there's only eight, so you do the math, are agreeing with this. Has anybody ever said, there's not enough hours in the day? Has anybody said, my kids are growing up so fast, what's happening here? Has anybody ever tried to do something? I mean, I'm wearing a boot here, so this is pretty obvious. Has anybody ever tried to do something and you said, when I was younger, I used to do that a lot better, and now I just get a broken foot when I do it? Like, time is constantly telling us that we have to hurry up. Or time is constantly telling us that we used to be better than we are now. Used to be prettier than you are now. Used to be better looking than you are now. Used to sing better than you can now. Used to preach better than you can now. Your glory days are over. Jesus, in his first miracle, and I'm not going to get all the way into this, but in Jesus' first miracle, Mary says to Jesus, they ran out of wine. And Jesus does two things that are completely paradoxical. He says, my hour has not yet come, which is a way of saying it's not time for me to do these things. And then he does it. He makes wine. Why does he say here, my hour has not yet come, and then immediately he does it? Because one of the reasons, there are many, one of the reasons is that Jesus doesn't want us to think that he's doing things because time is telling him to. He's doing things because love is asking him to. Not time. I mean, one of my favorite quotes from the one and only Dr. Chris Green is that God is not efficient. And when we think of God, we think of the most perfectly efficient being, but look at the world, and then look at the church he's put in charge of helping things. God is not very efficient. Like, if I'm leading a church, God is not very efficient. If we are the hope of humanity, God is not very efficient. But he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He doesn't operate out of urgency. He operates out of love. We may be good at multitasking, but hear me. We are not good at multiprocessing. This is so important, Salem. We might be good at multitasking. And sometimes we're so good at multitasking that we multitask when we shouldn't be multitasking. We should be singularly tasking. Singularly? Whatever. My wife is an English major, and so when I mess up a word, I get nervous. Lord have mercy. Christ have mercy. Lord have mercy. But we are terrible at multiprocessing. In other words, something small, like the house is a mess, but now we're, I don't know, we're going out to dinner. And so we're out to dinner, but we can't enjoy being out to dinner because we know we're coming back home to a mess. Right? So we can't process the fun and the joy of being out together because we know that there's work that's not finished yet over here. Or maybe, maybe you get uh, that, that we weird queasy feeling on a Sunday afternoon because work is going to happen again on Monday, and it's still Sunday, it's still your day off, 
But like I remember when I worked at Allstate in the in the insurance in the claims department, I would know that on Mondays, like everybody got into car accidents over the weekend. Like everyone, that's what they did for the weekend. Like, yo, you want to hang out and get into a car accident today? Yeah, that's what everybody else is doing. Let's get into a car accident over the weekend. And then you'd come in on Monday, and there'd be 80 million car accidents. And so on Sunday afternoon, I would know as soon as I walk in, as soon as I sit down at that desk and put my headset on and turn on my computer, it is going to be nothing but blinding work until the day is over. Like, no, no breaks on Monday. And so on Sunday afternoon after church, I would start to get this little bit of an anxious feeling because I knew work was coming, and so I couldn't process the rest of the day off knowing that something was, was unfinished, that work was building up over here. I couldn't enjoy the time that I actually had off here. Maybe, maybe you've gotten into an argument with somebody, and then in the middle of an argument, <laughs> uh, Jacqueline and I always laugh about this, when we used to have the life transformation groups at our house, and the church would come over our house, we would get into an argument as people were coming, and Jacqueline is really, really slick, because as somebody's knocking on the door, and I'm going to turn the knob to invite somebody from the church in, she would get that last lick comment in that now I can't respond to, because I just opened the door, and Stuart and Marcella Walker are now standing in the doorway, and now I'm like, hey, praise God you're here, this is so great, oh my God, Jacqueline, come, it's the Walkers, and like two seconds ago, we were like, one more thing, I swear to one more, you know, and like, but now... You're, you're having trouble processing because now, as husband and wife, now you got to be buddies because now you got to put on the Halloween costume called... Right, now you got to put on the Halloween costume. Now you got to just dress up like a Christian for a second and put the whole thing on. And now you got to hang out. And so, like, maybe, like, they'll be like, hey, guys, do you want anything to drink? Yeah, we'd like some coffee. Great. I'll get some coffee. And you go into the kitchen. I'm like, they would like some coffee. And then there's just all this tension in the kitchen because now you're by yourself for a second. And you're having trouble processing this moment with somebody because you had an argument with them in this moment and you feel like you can't enjoy any moments until all the resolve that you need is done. Jesus doesn't live like this. Jesus, people need you. Jesus, there are sick people. And Jesus is like, yes, but there's also sick people over here. So I have to go. I have to leave work undone in order to do this work. I'm going to get back to this in a second because there, it does beg the question, well, what about these people? I'm going to get back to that in a second. But I read a book many, many years ago. And right now, behind that camera, my mother-in-law, Cheryl Dimitro, she knows exactly where I'm going right now because I use this all of the time. But I read a book by... Uh, a Jewish rabbi, his name is Abraham Heschel, and the book is called The Sabbath. And unfortunately, Rabbi Heschel is no longer with us, and what a loss not having him. He is the, Christ he is the Jewish version of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's just a tremendous voice. And in this book called The Sabbath, at the beginning, his daughter wrote the foreword of the book. And she wrote about in the Jewish faith, what it's like to celebrate the Sabbath. And one description stunned me forever. I will never forget this in any, I, I, I read a lot of books, and I, most of the time I don't even remember what the books were, but I will never, I can see it in my mind, I can see my underlines. I think I wrote wow next to it. She said, the Sabbath for a Jewish person begins at 6 p.m. on Friday. She said, my dad would be at work, and we, would, we knew at 5.30 he was leaving work to come home. 
And she said, we would be feverishly working in the kitchen to, to, make the Paso, to, to make the Sabbath meal, the Friday night meal. Big meal they would have every Friday night. And she said, at 5.45, my father would come home. He would get home at 5.45 just to make sure he was sitting down when the Sabbath started. And me and my mom would be working in the kitchen, and she said the kitchen would be a disaster, an absolute disaster. <clears throat> and at 5.55 p.m., her mother would say, that's it. We're going to go sit down. We don't want to be working when the Sabbath starts. And... Abraham Heschel's daughter said these words, I would sit down in the dining room, gazing into the kitchen at a mess uncleaned, and it would be so freeing knowing that I can sit at the table and enjoy the table with work yet undone. The Sabbath released her to say, work will be there later. But right now, it's time for family. And I'm going to divorce myself for a moment from this work that is undone to enjoy the family that is in front of me. In America, we have two kinds of people, people who work because they're addicted to it and people who work so that they can eventually stop working. Both of them are horrible. We should work because work is what God called us to do and we should rest as a way of making sure that we don't become workaholics. Jesus worked, and it says, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed, went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus worked, and he rested. Jesus left work undone to go do other kinds of work. Jesus didn't say, I'll get to those sick people as soon as these sick people are healed. He went where love was taking him. So, the main point I want to make here before I say, well, what about those other people? The main point I want to make here is this. Freedom resists the tyranny of time. I have so much to do that even if I sit down and spend five minutes with my wife, all I can think about is what I have to do. <clears throat> There's freedom for you. Not freedom to not have to work. Freedom to be able to take moments and not have the work you have to go back to become a pharaoh enslaving you in an Egypt called work. Doesn't have to be that way. What about the people that Jesus left? Jesus, people are looking for you. And Jesus says, well, we gotta keep going. Well, what about the people who are like, uh, really? I was next in line for my healing, and now he's gone? Jesus is creating space for the Holy Spirit and for the church. When Jesus was here physically, he wasn't omnipresent, so he would leave Capernaum and he would go to Samaria, and there would be people in Capernaum who need him. And that space where Jesus is in Samaria and people are in Capernaum, that space has now become the space that is occupied by the Holy Spirit. Whenever you feel dissonance between you and God, the Holy Spirit is what is filling that space. The church is what is filling that space. That's why Jesus said, greater things will you do than I did because you will be all over the world. I was only able to be in one 
place at a time. But now there is a church in all the places. So when people are, there could be churches that are resting and churches that are working. And then when these churches need to work, these ones will be resting. When we work together, when we're unified as a church body, as a family at home, as friends, as a body of coworkers at a job, when we work together, we can get all the work done and also not have to overwork. That's what it means to be a group of people that can be contemplative, that can slow down, that can train each other on how to receive these practices that slow us down. And then when you're slowing down, someone else is working. And that's what it means to be healthy. Well, how the heck do we do these three things? How do we get free from transaction, triumphalism, and tyranny of time? It's right in the middle. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. I just want to say something a little mystical now about this verse. I want us to see all of this as metaphor. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. Sometimes you have to pray in your night season. The way that you would be praying if everything was going well. It is important to stop when things are dark and to pray in your night season and to tell God what it's like to be you. Why? Because it turns out that your dark season is really an early in the morning season. It's really a dawn that you didn't know was right around the corner. Jacqueline and I were musing this morning about the woman who met Jesus at the well at noon. But she didn't realize that in natural time it was noon. But in her spiritual time it was the dawn of a new day. Because a new star was about to rise in her life that she had never seen before. So even though she was going there at high noon naturally, she was really there in the middle of the night spiritually but it turned out to be the dawn of her life because Jesus was showing up for the first time. So we need to rise in the middle of our night seasons and pray because there really is a dawn coming and prayer is how we resist the powers that try to enslave us to flattery, that try to enslave us to being self-justified, seen, affirmed, the need to be seen, noticed, and it frees us from time. And the older we get, the more time starts to really kind of freak you out. My, my spiritual director, Brother Randy, he said, he said, a healthy human life is seen in three stages, zero to 30, 30 to 60, and 60 to 90. And he said, in our culture, 30 to 60 are called the prime years. But he said, if you read the narratives of Scripture, 60 to 90 are the prime years. 60 to 90 is when your life really starts to develop a lot of meaning because now you've lived and you've learned and you've experienced, and now you're full of things to pour out and to share and to love with. And he said, we're constantly, our 30 to 60 is constantly in competition with God's 60 to 90. He said, when you're between the age of 30 and 60, you're too big for your younger pants and you're too small for your older pants. <laughs> you're stuck in this in-between stage. But when you turn 60, it's the beginning of fully knowing who you are 
and enjoying a life of finally knowing this is who I am and this is what I'm called to. And Brother Randy says, I wish I could tell the 15 to 30-year-olds and the 30 to 60-year-olds that they don't need to rush, that they just need to slow down and absorb because one day they're going to be a sponge that God is just going to squeeze and all of this wisdom and love and goodness is just going to come out of their life. And so that is my prayer. I don't even know what the point of this entire sermon was, but it was good, I think. And so freedom resists the need to have to do things. And it puts us into the place of saying we get to do things. I want you to wake up tomorrow and not say I have to go to work. I want you to say I get to go to work. I want you to wake up tomorrow (laughs) and not say I have to be married to this person. I want you to say I get to be married to this person. I get to have these children. I get to go to this church. I get to live in this body. I get to drive this car. I get to live in America right now. I get to do these things. That's freedom. I'll have the worship team come on up and let's, let's get ready to come to the Lord's table where he feeds us with freedom. Let's talk about freedom at the Lord's table. Let me see if Ian actually put bread in the cup this time. He did. Thank the Lord. If you want to understand that joke, watch the end of last week's sermon. It's funny. This is freedom. This is freedom. On the night when our Lord was betrayed. On the night, this is the best. I'm just just, just popping into my head right now. This is the best definition of freedom. And you've heard me say it, but I just want to say it in this context. On this night... People were taking Jesus, and they were breaking him. On this night, people were taking Jesus, and they were breaking him. They were taking his freedom from him. They took his clothes from him. They thrust him in front of a crowd. They beat him in front of everybody. They treated him like he wasn't a human being. They put him on a cross, hung him from a tree, murdered him in front of everyone. They took everything from him. But just before they took everything from him, Jesus stood at a table and said, this is my body, which is given to you. You can't take from me what I'm giving you. You can't steal what I've already given. You can't manipulate me because I'm walking right into your trap on purpose. That's freedom. Before you can steal it, I'm giving it. Before you can take it, I'm offering it. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you, when he easily could have said, this is my body broken by you. This is my body broken because of you. But he says, this is my body broken for you. He says, I lay down my life, and I pick it back up again. I'm free. You can't kill me when I'm laying down my life. You can't steal from me when I've already given it to you. That's freedom. That's called the poverty of God. The freedom of God is the fact that he can give everything free of charge just because of love. So our Lord took bread, and when he had given thanks, he was free to give thanks. On the night when everything was going wrong, he was so free he gave thanks. 
And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. As often as you eat this, eat this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, our Lord took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink of this cup, drink this in remembrance of me. Join me in my freedom to lay everything down just because of love. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would descend on these gifts that we're offering to you. We offer you this bread, and we offer you the fruit of the vine. And we pray that you would descend on it and make it for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and the drink of new and unending life in him. And I pray that you would descend on us. We offer ourselves to you right now. Forgive us of our sins. Give us the strength to walk in newness of life. Descend on us so that we might become for the world the body of Christ, the church, and say to the world, this is our church open for you. This is our money given to you. This is our time spent on you because we love you. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. This is the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. This is the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. Would you partake with me this morning? Salem, thank you for being here with us this morning. We pray that you enjoy the rest of your week. You get to enjoy it. Uh, sign up for the book study on Wednesday night. Men and women, sign up right now for our men's and women's ministry in two weeks. We'll see you Wednesday night on Zoom. It's going to be good. Racial reconciliation should be a good discussion. We'll talk to you guys on Wednesday night. Grace and peace. Love you, Salem. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.